Hello, and welcome to another conversation about software engineering. I am Joy Heron, and today on the Case Podcast, I will be talking to Michelle Hansen about customer interviews and deploying empathy. Michelle is uh, the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Software Social, um, and she's also the co-founder of Geocodio and an author of a new book called Deploy Empathy. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Hi, Joy. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm really thrilled for you to be here. Um, I wanted to start out our our conversation today. Uh, I personally find um, our personal journeys to be really interesting. So I just wanted to ask you kind of to open up what your personal journey is um, in the software industry. You know, it's funny. How, how back do you want me to start? Uh, how far? Because <laughs> you can decide. <laughs> so actually, I remember. So so both of my parents are software engineers. Mm-hmm. And, um, I actually remember at one point my, my dad was getting like this, like side project going Mm -hmm. and, um, I don't even, I don't even remember what it was for or what I was doing or anything, but I was like helping my parents like test whatever, whatever this thing was. And they were willing to pay me $20 an hour to help them with this, which was a lot more than the money I got for mowing the lawn or babysitting. Like, I think I was making like five dollars an hour babysitting mm-hmm. um and i remember that being like a whoa like wait i can get paid this much money to be on the computer what um and you know of course was also somebody who played around with html on myspace and whatnot mm-hmm. um but really you know seriously kind of started when i got out of college um i actually i studied economics and international relations so not at all related to software. Um, but when I graduated, I ended up getting a job at a web development agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, from there, I uh, ended up you know, really getting into uh, the web development side of things because in college, I had started various projects that were all run off of WordPress and the company was mm-hmm. building WordPress sites mostly. Um, so after about a year or so, I... Uh, of, of working there full time, I became a technical project manager, managing all of their web development projects, and then took on product management as kind of like a side job because it was a really mm-hmm. small company. Um, ended up really falling in love with products. Uh, changed jobs to become a product manager um, at a at a company in uh, financial publishing, um, and. Ended up doing running product development there. That was really fun. Um, and you know, in between all of this, you know, uh, around the time I was working at that agency, I also married a developer, and mm-hmm. we got our own projects going. Uh, we launched a mobile app first, and then had a couple hundred bucks a month in ad revenue. Used that to basically fund Geocodio, which launched in January of 2014, which is mm-hmm. a software as a service to convert. Basically, to convert addresses to coordinates and coordinates to addresses, and also add extra data that you might need related to that. Um, and so then I went full time on Geocodio in uh, 2017. It's kind of that's sort of the the short run the of short it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> the short so, and so long. It's been a, it's been a long a long uh, journey. It sounds like from the very beginning until now. Um, yeah, I guess I've just always been comfortable around like the the sort of technical world, even if I'm not. Mm-hmm. Well, so funny, you know. I always say I'm not. I'm not a developer, and and 
you know, all I'll say I'm like, I'm the non-technical side of things. And then my husband looks at me and he's like, no, you're technical. Like, look at what you can do in spreadsheets. <laughs> and like, I spent like two days this week, like diving into something in a, like building an API integration for like Google Sheets. And it was so fun. Like, <laughs> I really love Excel programming. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I think it's just always something I've been around and have always been uh, just just like comfortable with. I, find, I always find um, this story so so interesting. So thank you uh, for sharing that. Uh, specifically today, you you mentioned that you um, really got interested in interested in product at a at a certain point in time. Um, so is this around the time that you started getting interested in um, in talking to customers as well? Kind of. So my early exposure to product did not have any customer involvement really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was basically, you know, here's what the head of the company thinks we should build. Okay, great. Let's go out and build that. And, Oh, why does nobody want to buy it? Like, huh, maybe we need more ideas. Let's go talk to the head of the company again and see what we should do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I think launching Geocodio was really kind of the first like moment for me around this because so we launched January 2014. We were front page of Hacker News all day. Um, and as a result of that, I mean, so we, you know, we made $31 our first month, which is, you know, for us, that was great because like we just mm-hmm. wanted to cover our server costs, which were two little digital ocean droplets for 10 bucks a month each. So like we had made $10 more than we spent. So we were psyched. Um, (laughs) but more so out of that, we got like hundreds of emails from people with feedback on things and asking us, Oh, like, can you support this country? Can you do this? Can you do that? And because I don't come from the geographic space, like I'm like, I'm not a GIS person. Um, we would just ask them like, okay, like, why do you need that? Like, can you tell us why? Because we genuinely did not know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that kind of, it's kind of was really interesting, like hearing about all these different things. And I found it really fun to learn about everything that people were doing. And also once we, like, we would start building things that the people asked for, and then we would grow more. And so, the, you know, first they asked us for reverse geocoding of turning latitude longitude into, um, addresses. And we did that. And then it started growing more. And then people were telling us about how they, you know, they, they were, they saw that we had the API, but they also had spreadsheets. And so it was like the developers at companies were using us, but the marketing people wanted to use it too. Or maybe they had a big, you know, they, they needed to run their whole database through and it was just easier to upload a CSV. And it turned out that the only service at the time that you could do that with was like, you could email it to this guy and then he would get it back to you <laughs> in a couple of days. And we we're like, yes, this sounds like something for software. Um, so, so then we just kind of were just like, genuinely asking people questions about what they were doing. And then once we've grokked it, kind of building something and then seeing our growth uh, improve. Um, And so that was a wake up call for me. And when I took my full-time job as a product manager, because I, I got tired of going from project to project and I really wanted to be able to like, so just, sorry, you, you had started Geocodio and then you got your job as the, as the product manager. Yes. So that was December of 2014. I switched jobs Mm -hmm. and I was still running Geocodio as a side project. Um, I, so, so when I switched to, to being a product manager, I, 
was still like more excited about feedback than the other product managers at the company. Like I, you know, I, I had seen the results of feedback emails. So I started putting those in for when we had new cohorts of customers coming through and like trying to like personally talk to them and became, you know, really close with everybody in the customer service department where, you know, normally most of the non customer service staff didn't really spend much time there. I was there every day talking to people saying here, like, what are people saying? Like, can I Mm -hmm. listen to what you're hearing? Like, but it didn't really occur to me that I could like talk to them myself um, until about a year later uh, when I got to start working with a user researcher and Mm -hmm. there was kind of a, a shift in the team too. And it started doing usability testing. And then we started really seeing how people were using what we had built and where things were going wrong. And Mm -hmm. then it was, and, and it was like, Oh wait, hold on. We're, we're really getting stuff out. Like, this isn't like a drag on us. Like I thought this was going to be, you know, it's just going to be someone complaining and then we all feel bad at the end. No, this is like inspiring us. This is motivating the team. Like everyone is fired up. Like now we really understand like why people aren't completing, you know, this onboarding sequence or, or whatever. Um, and then soon after we started actually interviewing them and that was when things really took off. Um, and, and I was observing interviews for, I think a couple of months before I actually started interviewing myself. Cause there really is, a um, that, you know, there, there is a, a way of doing it that you need to learn. Um, mm-hmm. and and so, yeah, so that's kind of really when I got into interviewing. And then once I got into interviewing, you, it, I mean, I couldn't get out of it um, because it's just, it's so enlightening. Like it was just revelatory for me as a product manager because I went from looking at spreadsheets, which I already said are my happy place mm-hmm. um, and, you know, analytics and stuff like that. And then kind of being like, okay, we, you know, how do we get these metrics to move? Like, okay, let's see the people who did this, did that, like, those people, you know, that's the result we want. If we get more people to do this thing, then maybe do that. Okay, let's run an A-B test, like that kind of decision-making. And it wasn't working. But then we started talking to people and understanding what they were trying to do. And then all of a sudden things started to click and the team was motivated. And instead of, you know, talking about like, what is this card again? Like, what are we trying to do? Where is that? Like, what's the rationale for this? Like, everybody just got it because they had Mm -hmm. also like, Maybe they had been in the room with us when that we had interviewed someone or they had heard clips of it or they had seen quotes from it or, you know, they had been in a debrief for, for one. Um, and so, yeah, so that was about six years ago. Six years ago. So from this, the, in these six years, you started out um, just kind of trying it out and finding you liked it. Um, and now six years later, you've written a book on the topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how did, how did your um, learning journey uh happen over this time? Uh, did you, did you do a lot of like really intensive theoretical learning right at the beginning when you were starting, or did you just kind of pick up these things over the years? So in the beginning, there was mostly observational learning. So I was fortunate enough to be able to observe a PhD user researcher and an experienced design leader do interviews. Um, and it was really helpful learning from them and also reading books recommended by them. Um, I read a lot of Rosenfeld books. Um, so mm-hmm. Indy Young's Deploy Empathy. Or sorry. Oh my gosh, that's my book. Indy Young's <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Indy Young's Practical Empathy. One of my favorites. Um, also books like uh, Service Design um, is is another one. I think I read a, around that time. Um, user Experience Team of One is a good one. Even though there was multiple of us, it kind of like... It, it, it spoke a lot to what we were trying to do. Um, and I mean, also other product books at the time too, that really like that, that interviewing helped me apply them. So like Marty Kagan's book, Inspired, um, that one uh, is one of my favorite product books and knowing how to interview helps me apply that book so much better. Um, so it was kind of a combination of observing, starting to interview myself, reading. And then also when we were doing those interviews, we were, you know, we're in a larger company. And so we were processing those interviews. Mm -hmm. So we would get transcripts made. We would be clipping out quotes from them. We would be making journey maps, you know, you know, stuff put on post-its, like, you know, all those, you know, sort of, uh, uh, perceptions about UX people loving post-it notes and like keeping Mm -hmm. 3M in business. Like, yeah, that was us. Um, so so I think also the, the the practice of reading the transcript of what you said and listening back to mm-hmm. it is so helpful for learning. Um, because then you feel like, oh, like I shouldn't have said that. Like I could have said it this differently. Okay, like next time I'm going to do that. And I mean, I even still do that. Like I still read stuff and I'm like, oh, I, maybe I could have said something different there. But then it's just, okay, it's just like, this is part of the learning is like reading it, understanding, okay what could I do better? But also I learned so much from this anyway, despite the fact that I didn't say, you know, the perfect thing every time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the question that I have is that I am a developer. Um, I think a lot of listeners of this podcast are probably developers or somehow maybe architects or involved in the software development process. Um, and my question is, is as a developer, uh, do I have a place in this uh, it, in this customer interview, um, uh, idea, like, can I also do customer interviews or is that just somebody that some is, or is that just something that the product people do? Yes, it is absolutely something that you can be involved with and don't just take my word for it. Stripe involves their developers in the mm-hmm. customer interview wow. process too. <laughs> okay. Easy end answer. So where is that? Where's the specific, like with me as a developer, what specifically, what value can I get from, from doing customer interviews? So first of all, the, the big one is really understanding why people need what you're building, which, mm-hmm. you know, if you're used to receiving tickets from a project manager or a product manager, I found that there was very often a lot of conversation on, okay, like, what is this for? Why do people need this? Like, what's the business case behind this? Like, basically, like, why are we building this? But then also, what does it need to be anyway? And Mm -hmm. when I was working as a product manager, I found that once we started bringing developers into the interviews, into the usability sessions, and just having them sit in the room with us, not they didn't even have to ask questions. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, those conversations were so much faster and so much easier because they just got it. They understood mm-hmm. who the customer was, what they were trying to do, what their whole context was. And it was things were less like a chore and they're more like, oh yeah, I want to like, I want to help that person that we talked to. Now, of course, you're helping thousands of people who are doing the same thing, mm-hmm. but like having that specific example of someone in your head really helps to kind of put you in their shoes and understand 
not just how your software should work, but also like what is the broader thing that someone's trying to do where your software is only one piece of it? And how can you make that whole process easier for them? And it just becomes so much more enjoyable to work on things when you know what what it needs to do and why and Mm -hmm. who it's going to help. Um, And Mm -hmm. so whether it's asking questions yourself, uh, like Stripes developers do as part of a group call, Or simply Mm -hmm. sitting in the room, there's so much value in having the developers there. And there's also value in in, in being part of the analysis process too, in in being part of the uh, tornado of post-it notes that can come out of analyzing interviews. Um, You know, one of my favorite studies on this is actually really the first study on this from 1994 Mm -hmm. is called Voice of the Customer. And this is sort of the seminal paper on... um, interviewing customers. In this context, it's in the context of usability studies. And so this is back in the 90s when they had usability labs that people would go to and then interact with things there that you couldn't just sort Mm -hmm. of do it over Zoom like you can now. And so they tested um, getting insights out of the interviews. So they took the, the transcripts and the videos of the interviews and asked different groups of people to analyze them. So one of those groups was a group of college students. Another group uh, or, 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 you know, uh, group there in a sort of experimental term was, um, the, the user research expert. And another group was engineers who actually worked on the product in question. Mm-hmm. And they found that the groups of engineers were more effective at pulling insights out of the interviews than the user research expert. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's really, that's really cool. Um, I think one thing is, is with the developers, what I know from my personal experiences is when we work on something, we kind of get emotionally attached to our software. Mm. Um, and so for me, one thing I personally think that customer interviews can help with is, is making sure that, um, that we're building the right thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're, we're building things that people actually want and need. Um, because if, if we aren't, and then it turns out these, this feature is, is, is not really useful for anything. Um, then it's like a big, it's really hard for developers. They're like, oh, what I spent so much time and effort and energy, you know, investing like into this, this feature that I've been building. And now you're telling me all of a sudden that, um, that this isn't, that this wasn't actually worth it. <laughs> it's kind of a really like a punch in your gut. Um, it's really uh, so spirited yeah. and demoralizing. Yeah, exactly. So I think yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's a good idea. Like, you know, if we can be sure that what we're building uh, is actually going to be used and be useful, then, then it, it makes a lot of sense um, for us to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I have difficulty with sometimes is can, is actually getting to talk to the customers. <laughs> um, I want to talk to customers, but then it's like sometimes I have to talk to somebody in order to be allowed to talk to to a customer. Um, and I have difficulty sometimes with uh, that kind of um, uh, getting that permission from a boss or from a customer to mm. talk to their customers. Um, I don't know if you have any resources or anything uh that you could point to about how we can do that part a little bit better. So that's always tricky. Um, I would say the, where I would start is if your company already has a user researcher or product manager 
who mm-hmm. is doing this work. So in some cases it all, it might also be your uh, business intelligence team doing it too. Um, if they're already doing uh, sessions with customers, whether those are usability or uh, interviews, see if you can just sit in the room with them. Mm-hmm. Um, chances are they will be excited that you want to be there. Um, they are not the ones who are going to gatekeep. They are going to be excited that someone is showing interest. Um, and just ask if you can just sit in the room and listen. Um, mm-hmm. If you're having a boss who is questioning you doing this um, and you don't have a user research team, that's going to be a bigger challenge. It's always a challenge to sell user research within an organization. Mm-hmm. Um in that case, you, you kind of have to be a little more strategic. Um, usually the approach that I, I recommend is is try to make your boss think it's their idea. So <laughs> somehow get them to read a Clayton Christensen book and then mm-hmm. they will be all fired up about jobs to be done and, you know, oh, what is like, what is the thing people are hiring our product to do? And like, let's figure it out and everything. And then that'll kind of help with your inertia. And then maybe they'll get somebody else running the interviews and you can tag in and be like, hey, like all, you know, I'll help you with it or, or whatnot. Um, Cindy Alvarez's book, Lean Customer Development has some tips mm-hmm. on this, though it's written from the product manager's perspective. Um, it definitely is more unusual for a developer to initiate um, a customer research um, effort, but don't let that hold you back. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We, for, for any listeners, we'll, we'll try to get links to all of those um those books and things and put them in the show notes uh, so to make it easy to find them. Um, One thing I I find interesting is that the the title of your book, you call it not introduction to customer interviews, (laughs) um, but uh, deploying empathy. Uh, Could you tell me a little bit about how you came up with that title? Yeah, I think it was a shower thought kind of title. Um, I was trying to, I didn't know what to call it. I initially had this very long title or of the, what I was doing. Well, initially it was just Michelle's customer research guides. Cause I was just writing this. So mm-hmm. I had one central place to send other founders when they asked me how to talk to customers or usually developers who have transitioned into being founders. Um, and, and I didn't know what to call it. And then I was like, wait, it's like, I was like, it has to be a pun. Like, cause I just, I love puns. <laughs> and I was like, wait, hold on. So if it's deploy empathy, then it's like deploying, but you're not deploying code. It's empathy. But then people also use the phrase of like deploying empathy in a situation. And so like, I was like, oh, this is okay. Like, hold on. Like, and I like, I remember like running out of the shower in a towel, like to check, uh, you know, I want my name and uh, seeing if I could get the domain. And lo and behold, mm-hmm. deployempathy.com was available. Um, wow. I also grabbed deployingempathy.com because I wasn't quite sure. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, that, that that's it. <laughs> um, but I, I think I wanted to make it really clear to technical people that this was a book for them too. Like, mm-hmm. so somebody who is not from a technical background, to them, the meaning may just be that meaning of, you know, deploying empathy with without any sort of code implications of it. But a developer, mm-hmm. they see the word deploy and they're kind of like, oh, is this for me? Um, so yeah, okay. it makes people feel welcome in a, in a field mm-hmm. that very, a lot of the books are written for user research people. Some of them are written mm-hmm. for product managers. A lot of them assume a lot of user experience background. Um, and so I wanted to make it very clear that this book did not, that 
you know, the developers and, and technical writers and, and turns out a whole host of other people too. Um, mm-hmm. but, but that this book was as much for them as it is for, you know, product managers. Well, there's also a rubber ducky on the cover, um, <laughs> which is like when we were programmers, we, I, I, I had a rubber duck on my desk while I was mm-hmm. working for a really long time. Cause we always say, if you talk to the rubber duck and explain it to the rubber duck, then you'll figure it out. Yes. <laughs> so exactly. is that the, is that the, um, the metaphor you were going for with the cover of your book? So it's a spin on that, but the rubber duck mm-hmm. is definitely a dog whistle to developers. I mean, and normally the word dog whistle is used in kind of a negative connotation, but it's sort of a like hint, hint, wink, wink. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, same, same story, but the idea that um, I, I apply it in the context of is to imagine yourself as the rubber duck when you are talking okay. to a customer. Okay. So I am the rubber duck. It's not like I'm talking mm-hmm. to somebody, but, but I'm no, like that you listening. are the rubber duck. Yes. <laughs> I'm the listening one. Yes. Oh, interesting. Very nice. Um, another thing I found interesting about your book is you use a definition of empathy, which is not one that I heard growing up. So growing up, I always learned, you know, there's sem- sympathy and empathy and sympathy is like, you're just kind of saying, you know, saying nice things to people, like when, when they're sad, you know, like, oh, that's, I'm sorry, that's, that's too bad. Um, and then empathy is like, you're actually able to feel like what they're feeling. Um, but you use a different definition of empathy in your book. Uh, so could you, uh, maybe, maybe tell us a little bit about that definition that you use in your book? I, I love this. I think this this uh, is such an important thing to talk about. And it was actually wasn't even something I originally planned to talk about in the book, but I had readers ask me a similar question to this. Um, and so I'm happy to talk about the difference between empathy, sympathy, and uh, compassion. I think it also belongs mm-hmm. in there. So sympathy, as you said, um, is, you know, is, is usually um, kind of something to the effect of, I'm sorry that happened. And, or I'm sorry you feel that way, or um, it's terrible that happened to you. And the problem with those phrases is that they, first of all, they they, they center the person speaking first. So all of those phrases mm-hmm. start with, I'm sorry, when the oh, other yes, person is hurting. True. The other problem with them is that they isolate the other person and they emphasize that the other person is the only one experiencing this and you are not. Mm -hmm. So it places distance between the person speaking and the person receiving that. So saying, I'm sorry, you feel that way says only the other person feels that way and you don't see it or agree it or understand it. Mm -hmm. And we say these things without really realizing it, especially if we've learned to say them this way. Um, And Brene Brown talks about this a lot, that, that sympathy very often um, is is counterproductive and it makes someone feel more alone and feeling alone is one of the worst feelings you can make someone feel uh, being alone mm-hmm. and and shame um, as she talks about. So, and then moving on to compassion is when, you know, I, I think of compassion and I don't think of words. I think of more so sort of someone like explaining how they went through something difficult and the person they're talking to simply like clutching their own heart right? Because Mm -hmm. they are sort of, they're feeling it, you know, and and you see it in the body language, especially. And, and, and and compassion also comes through as an action. You know, you see someone who is cold and you, you put a blanket around them, right? Like I, I think of that as compassion. Someone is hungry and you give them food and you, you know, you help them Mm -hmm. with that. Um, Empathy 
is different. So the book, the definition I use in the book is from Brene Brown, Indy Mm -hmm. Young, and from Chris Voss, the author of Never Split the Difference, two very different people, one coming from a, um, you know, a social worker research perspective, one coming from a user research perspective, and one coming from a former FBI hostage negotiator's perspective. And this definition is basically that empathy is seeking to understand someone else's experience, even mm-hmm. when it differs from your own. And basically validating their experience and putting your own opinion of it aside. And so what it means in this context, in the software context, for example, it's, you know, let's say we're building invoicing software. It's understanding Mm -hmm. the entire process someone goes through, not just to click to create an invoice, but understanding Oh, okay. Wait. So first it started out that they were negotiating this deal with this company. And then they had to deal with the procurement portal that that company uses with the invoicing people. And then they had to go through all of these steps to get set up with the invoicing, like the, the procurement portal. And then when they finally went to create the invoice, here's all of the different things that they had to do. And then this is what their process was to resolve it. And it's, so it's understanding that entire activity that they were going through from their perspective. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know, like a sort of um, example of this is, is when you're, you look up a recipe and it says it takes 15 minutes. um, But then it turns out the recipe assumes that everything has been pre-chopped and your oven is already heated and the water is already boiling. And (laughs) that recipe does not understand the entire process that someone else is going through and all of the different hurdles and barriers and steps that they're going to face in the course of making dinner. Um, and, and so that's how do, how do we make software that really understands the entire process that someone is going through? Even if we think it's ridiculous that they're still using Internet Explorer, we have to understand why are they still using Internet Explorer? You know, what can we do to make this easier for them? Oh, it turns out the step before they use our software requires a ton of paperwork and it's like 10 steps and they really hate it. So by the time they get to mm-hmm. our software, they're super like annoyed and irritable and tired. And that's why they're having trouble with our software. It's not because anything is wrong with our software. It's because they're already tired from all this other stuff they were doing. Um, And so empathy is understanding someone else's context and someone else's perspective. And it actually doesn't require that you feel the same way they do. And Mm -hmm. in fact, it's actually kind of distracting. So as we sort of talked about with sympathy, um, when you say, I'm sorry, blah, 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 right? This happened to you. You're centering yourself. And if someone starts explaining to you a process they went through, even if it's a sort of boring, normal, everyday uh, business process, like creating an invoice, and you all of a sudden, you, you start to feel annoyed at this process and you start to feel tired, like then mm-hmm. you're centering yourself again. And that's counterproductive. The whole point is to understand their perspective on what they mm-hmm. are going through. And it's helpful to understand the emotions behind that. But it's it's one of those things where you don't really need them to say, I was frustrated because if they spent, you know, four hours working through paperwork and, it, and it, they were very tired at the end, you don't really need to hear them say it was they frustrating frustrated. because it's <laughs> very clear that they're frustrated yeah. by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one thing I, I do, I do really like that definition. One thing I think, um, I've always felt I, I struggle a little bit with empathy, like, um, 
when it's when we're talking about usability testing or something, then I, I can I can kind of get it. And the reason I can I can I can understand the user in that context is because it's something that I'm familiar with. You know, if mm-hmm. I'm if I'm asking a user to 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 um, try to use my software and I'm kind of looking looking at what they're doing and, and if they're understanding everything because it's my software. I can, I, I've had similar experiences and so I can understand what they're going through. But I think in general, my, my question with that, um, with that definition is what about when I don't understand their perspective? You know, this, this definition of empathy, it's talking about, we need to understand someone else's perspective and also, you know, recognize that that's a valid perspective to have. But what about that first part? Like if we have difficulty actually understanding um, where they're coming from. Uh, so that's, I have a little bit of a question mark there. So this is where asking questions and learning how to dive into their experience is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also just like finding it fun. And I think a lot of us are, you know, so first of all, empathy is a learned skill. This is according to Brene Brown. A lot of us don't learn empathy growing up, right? If you're crying, you're told to stop crying. You're not, it's not, oh, what's going on? What happened here? Mm -hmm. Right? Some people have parents, you know, who who do that or they learn this as children. But for a lot of people, it's, you know, shut up, stop crying. Like, and, and that's not empathy. So if you had empathy modeled to you as a child, Maybe, you know, you understand it uh, sort of intuitively as an adult, but for most people, it's something they learn Um, Mm -hmm. and it's okay to learn it. I learned it. Like I had to learn how to, you know, to listen to people and understand how to reflect back their experience and dive deeper. The other Mm -hmm. thing there is that a lot of us were also conditioned to not ask questions and we got chastised for asking quote unquote stupid questions or basic questions when we didn't understand something. And we also may have been conditioned to not ask people questions about their lives because maybe we were told that that was intrusive or we were made Mm -hmm. to feel bothersome when we did that. And in this context, that's what you need to do is first of all, understand that those hesitations you have are completely normal and it's okay to have hesitations about this. You have good reasons why you have those hesitations. They come out of your life experience. They've helped you probably. Um, But in this context, we need to try to put them aside and say, okay, how can I understand what this person is going through and why? And this is also why mm-hmm. I have five different scripts in my book so that if you're really stuck on, okay, how do I ask this person why they cancel? Like, where do I even start? Or what, mm-hmm. like, why, you know, how do I figure out why they switch to using this product so I can find more customers, right? There's mm-hmm. scripts there. So there's sort of, you know, there's, there's, there's like training wheels, so to speak. And, you know, my hope is that people customize the scripts eventually, but the idea is that you can just sort of grab them and go and, and, and run with it. And so you don't have to try to figure out how do I ask them more about this? And the book also includes a lot of tips for following up with people. Mm-hmm. And I think something that surprises people is that a follow-up question the best follow-up questions are not questions at all. They're instead simply okay. reflecting back what someone has said or leaving a pause for them to fill so that they feel like um, there's more space for them to say what they're saying. Um, in many ways, that 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 part of the book, How to Talk So People Will Talk, is mm-hmm. kind of the most important chapter of the book because it really 
goes into the nitty gritty of how to get someone to keep talking in a way that is not spelled out in a lot of other books. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I have actually read that section of the book. It's it's called How to Talk So People Will Talk. Um, and it goes into some some different really tactics about how to talk. <laughs> and my my reaction to the, the section was actually, wow, like almost none of these things are things that would come normally to me, or I feel a little bit uncomfortable doing that. Like, um, I don't know, one of the tactics is is like mirroring, I think. Like you, when someone says something, you just kind of rephrase, um, what they said. Um, and so it, I don't know, it just, it's just interesting. So in your experience, did you, um, was it really difficult to pick up all these things Did it take a lot of practice? Um, or is it something that, that you can pick up pretty easily? It definitely took practice. Um, I would say for the first for the first couple of months, definitely I was doing this. It really took a lot of focus for me to sit there mm -hmm. and be like, okay, listen, don't try to relate to what they're saying. Try to dive deeper into what they're saying. Just repeat it back to them, even repeat it back wrong to prompt them to elaborate, put them in control of the conversation, even though you're actually running it, like put, you know, give them the, the rain, make them feel like they have the rain, so to speak. Uh, don't try to show them how smart you are, you know, <laughs> just try to listen to them. Right. Cause like, you know, something I talk about in the book is that I have ADHD. Now everybody has a different mm -hmm. experience of ADHD. Um, but let's put it this way. People with ADHD are not known for being calm and listening to other people. It's, uh, as a group, we're not <laughs> especially renowned for it. Um, and so it was really hard for me to learn this. Um, mm -hmm. and I think something I try to stress is that you don't have to read this book and then change how you talk to everyone in your life. Like it's okay that it's not natural to you to, uh, you know, mirror back what someone is saying, like mm -hmm. th that's okay. You don't have to do this in your whole life, but for that half an hour or an hour once a week, when you're talking to a customer, that's when you do it. Think of it like acting. Think of it like you're putting on a costume and this is how you act in this specific scenario to understand what people are trying to do and then how you can use that to build software. Yeah. I think, but the, 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 the when we talk about acting, that's also a little bit from a bit, a bit, seems a bit odd to me. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but, but like, it feels like, okay, I could act empathetic, but that doesn't actually make me be empathetic. I don't know. And, and is there, there's, is there a distinction really between the two or by acting empathetic, can you become empathetic, uh, just kind of by practicing or something like that? This is where those definitions of empathy are really important. You know, as we were saying earlier, if someone is telling you how they spent four hours dealing with paperwork, but by the time they get to your, your software, even if they haven't told you the emotion that they were feeling, you can imagine how you would feel in that scenario and how frustrating that would be. Mm -hmm. And so even if you have not, have not done anything that is outwardly compassionate, which is where I think those two words really get mixed up a lot, even if you haven't said to them, oh, like, can I help you with that paperwork, which would be more of a compassionate thing, um, you're, you're still being empathetic by, you know, I think we forget that most people don't have people in their lives who will just listen to them without any 
you know, without any judgment or trying to contradict them. Right. Like I think so often in our lives, when you say like, Oh, I'm feeling really down today. Someone will say, Oh, it'll pick back up. Don't worry. That's not empathetic. Like Mm. that is toxic positivity. Like that is not empathy. Empathy is saying, yeah, it's going, it's hard today. Like that's empathy. And mm-hmm. so I think all of this about sort of feeling empathetic, I think we confuse that with compassion and I am, I am in favor of compassion, but I don't think we should, you know, I, I don't think we should, we, we, we need to stop mixing those two things up. And, and I see this all over the place and I hear it from people like you saying, what if I can't be empathetic? You know, I, 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 um, I've had people who are, um, either diagnosed or believe they, they have autism who have Mm -hmm. told me, well, I've been told my entire life, I can't be empathetic. Like, can I do this? And they also, they're also very sensitive about it too, because people have told them they can't be empathetic, which in turn, Mm -hmm. people sometimes mean that they're, you know, they, they can't care about other people. And it's like really, really bad and, uh, pretty awful. Um, and I don't think, empathy requires feeling the other person's feeling. Cause again, what I was saying before, if you're feeling what the other person is feeling, you have just turned it on yourself. Then you, then you need to regulate your own emotions, right? Rather than just understanding what their experience was. And maybe for some people, it's harder to understand the emotional side of something, but even if you still understand the functional side of it and you understand, okay, in all that paperwork, they also had a coworker coming in who was bothering them every 20 minutes. Even if Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily understand the social side of things very naturally, you can understand that this other coworker coming in and bothering them every 20 minutes was bothersome. Um, or that, you know, they have to go get approval from their boss for something. And like, it's, it's a long process. Like that's a social component to something. So you don't necessarily have to be intuitive or sort of innately, uh, emotionally attuned or, or, or socially attuned to use empathy or be empathetic. Uh, you know, empathy is, is, is a way of, of acting, of way of comporting yourself. It is not a feeling. It is empathy is not like anger, right? It's not something that you just feel. It's something that you do and you can make a conscious choice to be empathetic that, you know, when someone says, man, like I'm having an awful week, you say, yeah, you're having an awful week. And you don't say, you know, oh, it'll be better next week. Like mm-hmm. it's a decision that you make. <laughs> that that, uh, that is very interesting and uh, it's it's something that is in your book and something I've been thinking a lot about uh, recently because it's something that's new to me I think I need to process process it a little bit um one other thing I I wanted to ask you if you have any advice on is is it seems like with this customer interviews you have to improve your listening skills um is there any do you have any tips or tricks about how to do that that's such a good question because, I, as I mentioned before, it's something that I have really had to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I think, you know, I think a big challenge for me with listening was kind of uh, on on the one hand, calming down my brain a little bit, um, mm-hmm. and then also removing the desire to 
impress the other person or show them anything about myself. And again, I don't know if this comes out of being an ADHD person where you're kind of growing up, you're always told that you're not doing things right and that you're, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of not going to be as successful as other people and all these kinds of things. So you sort of start having to prove yourself a lot. Um, And I found myself just sort of doing that in conversations, Um, you know, where someone says something and then you just sort of, instead of diving deeper into their experience, you relate your own experience instead. Mm -hmm. Um, And... For me, it was a big shift in the listening to allow myself to be curious about the other person and to recognize that they enjoyed that. Like fMRI studies show that the parts of the brain related to pleasure and enjoyment light up the most when somebody is talking about their own experiences to someone else. Um, They don't light up the same way when they're listening to someone else tell them about it. So when you are listening to someone knowing that they are enjoying that and that you are allowed to keep asking them and that you are allowed to be curious. And then my mind gets all excited about like, oh, okay, wait, so like what happened here? And it's sort of, I, I liken it to um, sort of poking through their mental closet and getting to be like, oh, what's in this drawer? Like, oh, what's going on over here? Like, this is interesting. And, you know, and actually it becomes difficult to stop people from sharing too much and, and kind of getting into a place of, okay, thank you for sharing that with me. Like, can we go back to something you were mentioning earlier, you know, sort of that's more relevant and also not oversharing territory. Um, it's really great how many people I've had come to me who are like, the first time I did this, I was so afraid that it was going to be like 10 minutes and I wasn't going to get anything out of it. And they didn't want to talk to me. And then the third one, I couldn't get off the phone and I had to cut it short at an hour because they just kept talking. Mm. Like, um, but again, you know, that's something that you can practice. And, and I mentioned with the how to talk so people can talk chapter that, that even if you don't have to use these things in your daily life, it really helps just to try them out there. So for example, if your spouse comes home and says, traffic was terrible today, just say, traffic was terrible today and let them talk and be a witness to their experience. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I think that's a pretty good um, end to our discussion today. Is there anything um, else that you would like to add? I would like to add that technical people can talk to people just as much as anybody else, whether this Mm -hmm. is because I'm uh, the child of software engineers and married to one, or uh, research shows that um, technical people can also uh, be insightful in in customer um, situations. Um, Don't let that stereotype that developers can't talk to people hold you back. Anybody can learn empathy. Anybody can learn the skills to understand their customers so they know what to build. They know how to get customers. They know how to stop churn. You can do this. Thank you. <laughs> um, can you, j- just to wrap up, can you let us know how we can keep up with you online and where we could buy your book? Yeah. So um, you can buy the book on Amazon or on the book's website, deployempathy.com. There's, um, mm-hmm. you, you can buy Kindle version, PDF. I'm also doing an audio book that's uh, being released weekly as a private podcast. Um, so we're on the third part right now. Um, you can also preview the first five chapters of the book. 
um, at deployempathy.com. You can Mm -hmm. find me on Twitter at MJW Hansen, and that's Hansen with an E-N at the end. Um, You'll also find a link to the Deploy Empathy newsletter there um, where I write about ongoing topics, things about the book um, and whatnot. And of course, as you mentioned, there is my weekly podcast, Software Social, where uh, Colleen Schnettler and I, Colleen is an electrical engineer turned um, developer, and mm-hmm. uh, we talk about our businesses every week. It's a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Just slip that in. Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoy listening to it every week. Um, well, thank you so much, Michelle, for coming on the show and talking to me. Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, And thank you to you for coming on the show and to all our listeners. Um, Until next time. Thank you so much, Joy. Bye.